Hello and welcome to season two of Literary Speaking. I am so excited today because I have a very special guest to kick off the second season. It's author Carolyn Levitt. Carolyn is the best-selling author of over nine books, including her latest, Cruel Beautiful World. It is a very juicy read. I'm so excited to talk about it. As a screenwriter, Carolyn was a 2003 Nickelodeon Screenwriting Fellow finalist and is a recent first-round finalist in the Sundance Screenwriting Lab competition for her script of Is This Tomorrow? She also teaches novel writing online at both Stanford University and the UCLA Extension Writers Program, as well as working with writers privately. Carolyn, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm so thrilled to be here. Oh, I'm just so glad to have this conversation because you just you've always offered so much to the literary community and I know you're like widely respected by myself as well as many, many others. (laughs) And I just think you have so much wisdom to share because we had a very short pre-interview and there was just so much information. I was really excited to talk today. Oh, good. Me too. Me too. Great. So I think the main thing, you know, I really find with writing is that a lot of it has to do with perseverance. And for you especially, you know, maybe if you could just share with our listeners some of your experiences in persevering, even when it seems like things aren't happening, you know, maybe you could share a little bit of the beginning of your publishing and writing journey. Sure, I'd love to. I always tell other writers, never, ever give up because you never know what's going to happen. Uh, I started my writing career as a short story writer, and I sent out a million short stories, and, of course, I got a million rejections, literally hundreds and hundreds of rejections. And I happened to enter this contest for young writers, and I never thought I had a chance. And I won. And when I won, I got an agent contacting me, and then I got a book deal, and I thought, oh, this is great. This is the way it's always going to be. <laughs> and my first book was a, was a success, and I thought, oh, this is fabulous. I'll just, you know, this will be just great. And then my mm-hmm. publisher went out of business, so I got a new publisher, and the next book died. It literally died, and oh, I was wow. shocked, and I thought, well, Maybe I'll get a new publisher and the next one will do well. Um, that didn't happen. My next eight books, and, and a lot of them were with really big publishers, just they didn't hit. They were just failures. Nobody knew who I was. I would go to a party and people would say, well, what do you do? And I'd say, I'm a writer with a question mark. So I was writing my ninth novel and it was on contract to a big publisher and I turned it in and the editor called me up and said I'm sorry Caroline we can't publish this this just isn't it isn't special enough and Uh, I was stunned and I started to cry and I said what do you mean like can you help me make it special I'll rewrite it I'll do whatever you want and she sighed and she said you know what nobody here thinks that you can and so I cried harder and I said, do you, do you think that you might want to look at something else of mine? And she said, no, we don't really think so. So I hung up the phone and I knew my career was over because I had nine novels out. None of them except the first one had sold at all. And nobody knew who I was. And I thought, well, no, no publisher is going to take a chance on someone with a record like that. But my agent told me not to worry. And one of my friends happened to be with Algonquin Books. 
And she said, you know, I have an editor here, and I, I bet she might like your story. And I said, yeah, right, nobody else does. And <laughs> she told me to send it over, and I sent it over. And within a week, this new editor, Hundra, called me and said, we all love the book. We want to publish it. And I was, of course, shocked. And I said, look, you have to understand, I don't sell books. Are you sure? And she said, you'll, you'll sell books now. Just you wait. And they <laughs> took that little non-special book, and they turned it into six printings before it was even out. The month it got oh out, it got gosh. on the New York Times uh, on the New York Times bestseller list. So I just feel like if this can happen to me, it can happen to anybody it's just a question of being with the right publisher. The timing has to be right. You need marketing and publicity. Um, and there's a lot of things anyone can do to help themselves. But you just never give up. Mm-hmm. No doesn't always mean no. That's a wonderful because I think, you know, so many people coming into the industry learning, just starting out as writers, you know, a lot of people take rejection so personally. And it's kind of like you have to start to really grow a thick skin, even though, you know, you have those moments and you want to cry and hide in your house for months and months at a time. Have you ever had a time where you've been pulled backwards, like things are going really well and then you get a bad review? How do you handle that? Oh, yeah. Bad bad reviews are can decimate people. I know writers who say that they don't read their reviews just because it's so upsetting. Mm-hmm. Um, I used to get very upset by my bad reviews and very puzzled by my good reviews because sometimes they would point out stuff that I thought was crazier that I wasn't doing. And I, I did something <laughs> inside my house for weeks and weeks crying and feeling this is it, this is it. And then I did this really excellent thing, which is I became a book reviewer myself, I guess about 10 years ago maybe. And I started to see it from the other side, and it made me feel a whole lot better because you begin to realize a few things. First, you realize that it's one person's opinion. It's not the whole newspaper's opinion. I've had um, a, a bad review from a major paper where the book editor, who didn't do the review, told me, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. I can't tell my reviewers what to write. Um, I've loved books that everybody else has hated, and I've disliked books that everybody else, every other critic adores. It's just my opinion. You mm-hmm. also begin to realize that readers don't really care whether the review is good or bad. They're looking for the plot. If there's a really bad review and it sounds like a great story, people will go and buy the book. It doesn't matter. And also, sometimes when a review is really personal and really vicious, readers will read it and feel sorry for the writer and mad at the reviewer. And they'll go buy the book. (laughs) And they'll read it. And they'll love it. So you have to realize that it's not reviews, reviews, honest to God, they don't sell they don't really sell books. What sells books is people knowing about your book and telling a friend who tells a friend mm-hmm. who tells a friend. It's word of mouth. So nobody should I, – I, for my friends, when they get bad reviews, I annotate them. Everybody <laughs> thinks about them, like, obviously, this reviewer never went to school. Um, and you have to learn to look at them and say, okay, so you know what? This person didn't like it, but – that's that's just this person didn't like it. It doesn't matter. Yeah. On to the next, because they're writing yeah. reviews and you're creating art. So don't let don't nobody should ever let a review make them feel bad. Yeah, and I mean art is so subjective, right? Like 
what one person loves, another may not. And I, I can't imagine anybody not loving Cruel Beautiful World because I was literally just like page turner. I'm like, oh, what's next? What's next? <laughs> and I think, I think one of the things I especially loved about it is just the scene setting. Like you're right back to that time because it is set in the 70s. Thank you. And it's, you know, there's just so much visualization and you're following the story and, and the other, I mean, it's not just one story. I love the different characters, like Iris and, and just learning about what's happening. Cause you're like, this is all leading to something. Right. So I think it, right, it just right. has that great, great storytelling to it. I can't imagine Thank anybody you. being like, this is not special because it's definitely special and definitely a, <laughs> an amazing read. <laughs> I did get, I mean, I got I got more press for this book than I got for any other, which is all mm-hmm. due to the publicity and marketing department of Algonquin Books. But I did get one really bad review from, from a major paper, um, mm-hmm. which totally misread the book and said some personally mean things. Oh, um, no. And I was kind of, I was kind of, no, you know what? I was kind of stunned because first of all, I thought, well, it's good to be in this newspaper. And second of all, I felt that, um, you know, not everybody's going to like the book. And because this reviewer was so mad, I ended up getting a lot of letters from people saying, mm-hmm. I don't know what the deal was with this review. So that made me feel better, but it's part of the deal. You know, yeah. if, if you go back in history, uh, Fitzgerald got horrible reviews and he was a failure at the end of his life. You know, Van Gogh never sold a painting. So you can't, I always say it's not the business of the artist to pay attention to the critics. It's your business to, you can look at the review if there's anything that they say that seems helpful, because sometimes there is something helpful, then work on it. But if you look at it and you think this is terrible or this is a puff piece or they're wrong, then ignore it and move on and create more art. Mm-hmm. Now, for you, you know, you mentioned in the first book that you had a literary agent approach you after winning a writing contest. Did you continue on with that literary agent or did you switch agents throughout the process? Yeah, this is, I'm glad you asked that question because this is really important because a lot of writers think that you've got to have an agent, you've got to have an agent. And while that is most of the time true, you want the right agent because an agent mm-hmm. can be wrong for you and that's worse. My first agent was actually an excellent agent and that she sold every single book that I wrote. But the problem with us was that she she was kind of cool. Her personality was very cool. She never, she wasn't a hugger. She would say things to me like, well, you know, don't complain because you're lucky you're being published. It's a really hard, hard out there. And she led me to believe that I would never find another agent and I should just you know, settle with what I had. And after a while, I got tired of it. And my writing friend said, you have to try, you have to try for other agents. And I thought, I'm never going to get another agent. And I'll certainly not get one better than she is. And they told me, try, go ahead, mm-hmm. try. So I reached out to a lot of agents. It's, it's funny because at the time, there was a place called the Writers Union. And they had a book called The Book of Agents, which people yeah. wrote in. And people wrote very truthful things like, oh, this agent is senile, or this agent is great, and blah, blah, blah. And the agent who had the most positives was this agent named Gail Hockman. And I thought, oh, I can never get her. She's just too 
too, too good for me. And I approached her and she took me on and I met her. It's very important to meet the agent. And she was so warm and she hugged me and she was so complimentary and she had all these great ideas of what to do and she was on my side and I thought that's the agent I want and I've I've been yeah. with her forever I think it's been like 20 years now and I would I would never ever leave her because she's she's my <laughs> champion and she's also another thing about agents is some agents edit and others don't my advice is you want one who does edit and Gail yeah. edits everything I write before it goes out and it's so so helpful so I always feel safe supported she's just wonderful just the best Mm-hmm. It's so nice to hear that because I think, you know, sometimes when we're we're querying and we're trying to even just secure an agent, you know, we're mm-hmm. willing to take whatever can come at us. And there are some out there that aren't truly literary agents, but, you know, there's things right. that come up like reading fees and things like that, that writers want to avoid right. because a real agent isn't going to charge you a reader's fee <laughs> to read your manuscript no, or read aren't. your work. They aren't because they make money when you make money. And so they want you to make money. If they're Mm -hmm. charging you first off the bat, they're not a very good agent. You also want to pay attention to the the client list of the agent. I had one friend, she's a very literary novelist, and she was so excited that she got an agent at a big place. But this agent that she got did very commercial genre fiction um, were mostly with a supernatural bent, which wasn't, which is fine, but it wasn't what yeah. my friend was writing. And she, that agent just didn't know the right editors. She knew great editors who did supernatural stuff. So whenever you look for an agent, look for the client list, find out who they represent. And if you don't mm-hmm. know or like any of the books, that's not who you want to be with. Exactly. That's such great advice. For you, for this latest book, you mentioned switching publishers as well, and you mentioned Algonquin Books. What has it been like to work yes. with Algonquin? Oh my God, I call them the gods and goddesses. I they really, <laughs> I I'm serious. I've never been treated so well or with such respect or given such help. They first of all, they're they're small. They're they're a small publisher. There, they publish literary fiction. I know every single person who works there. If I have a problem, I can just call them up, and they'll call me instantly. They're all warm. Wow. They're all hugger. They're all huggers. They're all, and they think outside the box. They do mm-hmm. not. Most publishers will, when your book comes out, they'll promote it or market it for three months tops. And if it doesn't mm-hmm. hit by three months, then they're on to the next because they have to. They have a whole lot of other books. Yeah. Algonquin is still, I'm on my fourth book now with Algonquin. They're still promoting my first book. They really are. They have, they have, they just have genius, amazing, extraordinary ideas. And they're the ones that taught me that it's really all about marketing and promotion. You need, writers need to, if you don't have a publisher who does good promotion, you need to bite the bullet and hire one because Mm -hmm. that will get your book known. Now for hiring a publicist, I mean, there's so many out there and it's so hard to navigate and know, you know, in terms of like monetarily, even for some writers, it's a struggle to have money to promote the book depending on their advance. So, you know, which publicist would you look for that 
for trustworthy traits, maybe, or what's the best way to find a really great publicist or ones you would recommend? It's it's really hard because the really great ones are really really expensive. Um, they can be anywhere from fifteen thousand to twenty five thousand. They're absolutely worth it. But there are things mm-hmm. you can do to make it less. There's, there's one place I like is called Broadside, and they have a thing where you can possibly hire somebody for the, for, most, for the most important publicity time, which is six months before your book gets out. And you can hire somebody from there like for less, maybe for 10000 I don't really know. Um, Goldberg mm-hmm. McDuffie is absolutely excellent. And usually they'll work with you. So you can say, well, I'd like you to do this or I'd like you to do that and work out a fee. Um, I would avoid... I would avoid publicists who publicized books that you've never heard of. Um, Mm -hmm. Again, you have to look at their client list to see how they did. You can even contact the people who worked with them and said, what did you think of them? Did they help you? Um, But all is not bleak if a writer cannot find a publicist. There are still things that a writer can do on their own. And part of that is to be a big presence on social media um, and be a person. Don't just talk about your book. Um, publish, publishing personal essays is really great. If mm-hmm. anyone can submit an essay to Modern Love and the New York Times Sunday paper, they take three weeks to respond. And if you get in there, you will have more publicity than you can imagine. I have friends who are <laughs> agents just from being in there. It's a great yeah. thing to do. And what you sort of want to do is put yourself out there. There's Lit Hub is a great place to send out an essay. Uh, Refinery 29, The Manifestation mm. by um, Jen Pasoff Telegate. Oh, I is love fabulous. Jen It's so fabulous. lovely. Any, yeah, any place online that you can get on. Because what you want is you want people to recognize your name, and mm-hmm. that makes it easier. I think that's where people get confused with platform building, right? Because there's so much of that right. that gets said. Uh, you know, a lot of the agents are saying, you know, we want you to have a significant platform. And what people are thinking are, they're thinking numbers, like Twitter followers and Facebook followers. But really, it's about getting your name out there so that it's known. Yeah. Yeah. So the more essays you can, can do... Yeah, I mean, with Twitter, you can follow a thousand people in a day, and that doesn't mean that they're really following you. Yeah. What it is, is you're thinking, if you think of the world as a cocktail party, and it's your job to go up to people and say, hi, my name is so-and-so, and and not necessarily talk about your book or writing, but, you know, talk Mm -hmm. about chocolate cake or anything else. Your job is to make friends. You know, to yes. just there's a lot of editors and agents and media people on Twitter and Facebook, and yeah, you can follow them, but you don't want to talk to them about your book or ask them for things. What you want to do is mm-hmm. go to their Facebook page, and if they're posting dog pictures, say, "Oh my God, I love your dog. I have a dog too. What do you eat? <laughs> what do you do?" And you engage in a conversation. Yeah. And then usually, what happens is the media person will say, "Who is this person?" And they'll go back to your Facebook page and they'll say, oh, she's a writer. Okay, that's good. And that's what you do. And it takes time and it's slow. And it, it, it's, I don't think it's the numbers as much as how many people know you, which is why 
um, personal essays are so good because then people learn a little bit about you and that's what they remember more than what Mm -hmm. they remember of you on Twitter. It's so true because there's essays that I've read where it's just stayed with me and I always I always end up reaching out to the writer of them at some point just to say, you know, this really got me and I really appreciated it. And usually they have a book coming out or something. And I think collaboration is a big part of the community too, because for me, I just, I'm so passionate about books. I love them and I love to promote them and talk about them because it's so much fun to say to somebody, have you read this? And they've read it and you get to discuss it, you know? And uh, I think that's a big part of it is collaborating, right? Absolutely. And what you do is such a gift to the writing community, Crystal. It really is. It's it's just, you know, because first of all, you're you're being yourself, which is great. So people know your personality and they think, oh, Crystal's really nice. She's funny. And also (laughs) you're doing, you're doing, you're promoting other books honestly and you know you can hear the enthusiasm in your voice and that's that's a really big deal and that's what everybody can be doing I mean the the writer Carolyn C used to tell writers every week just write a lovely note to an author you admire don't ask for anything just say I just and make it handwritten if you can just say you know I, I just loved your latest book and I just wanted you to know I'm not asking for anything and blah 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 and that's it and that's how you become I guarantee the writer will remember it and save it and yes. along the line, you know, you can meet up with that writer again or, or maybe along the line after a while you can ask for something. But the idea is just to give without expectation. Yes. And that's when things it's happen. So, that's so true. And I think, you know, it's funny because I used to be afraid to reach out to authors, you know, because I, I love their work. And I was like, they're so busy. They're so famous. And it's so funny because once we all get talking to each other, we're all just people and and, right, and people exactly. have appreciated it. People love it. I mean, everybody feels great when somebody reach out, reaches out to them and says, yes. you know, I just read this book and, and I've done it when I'm, I'm in the throes of the book and I'm making notes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I have um, one book I was reading recently. I reached out to the author and I was just like, I can't put this down. I was like, what is going to happen? I can't take it. They and then it. when I say love it, yeah. love that. And, you know, and I think it just means so much to authors. So I think if anybody that's listening has ever been a little bit nervous about reaching out or sending a tweet or sending a, a oh, note, no. a handwritten yeah, note or don't something. Don't be nervous. Don't be nervous. I mean, don't go you know, stalker and send it right to their home, maybe, maybe reach out to their agent and send it to not scare them. But it always means so much. And I think it is true. It's a great way to make connections with people within the community, you know, to support each other. And you have, you know, you've got your fabulous blog where you're supporting writers as well. So why don't you share a little bit about that process as well? Okay. Well, I started the blog because like many writers, you know, I I got the, you know, you could widen your platform thing. And I, I started the blog writing about myself and it really quickly became really boring to me because <laughs> there's not that much to say. I mean, what I'm going to say today, I sat at my desk and wrote for 10 hours. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> um, 
So I thought, well, maybe I could interview other writers. And I started with the writers I knew because I couldn't, as a book reviewer, you're ethically, you cannot review a friend's book. And I felt really badly about that. And I thought, well, if I have a blog, I can interview them and and I'll come out and say, this is my friend and blah, blah, blah. And people Mm -hmm. can take what they want. So I started interviewing all my friends and I put it all over social media and it began to grow. So then I began to reach out to writers who I didn't know and say, look, this is a blog. I'd love to interview you. It's really easy. It's just five questions all by email. I do the rest. And I started being able to interview really big names. And after about a year or so, the publishers began calling me saying, we have this book. Would you consider interviewing the author? And it's just been a great thing because, first of all, I get to support the community. Second, I get to meet and talk to these incredibly cool writers. And mm-hmm. it just builds community. It's just a really fun, easy thing for me to do. And it makes me feel good that I'm doing it. And you know, it, it, and I want to say that if other people also want to interview writers, go ahead and do it. I'm not the yeah. only blog out there. It's a great way to, I mean, you do the same thing, except you do it verbally. And it's a mm-hmm. great thing to do for anyone to do. Well, yeah, and it's so easy. I mean, really, even when I first started, you know, I was still nervous. And I just reached out to writers whose books I'd loved. There was no, I didn't have any sort of rhyme or reason. I just thought, I'm just going to reach out to these few and see what they say. And almost every single one of them said yes. They were more than happy to come on and share. So anybody can build something, right? Yes, of course. Because, and also it's, you know, there's there's many less book review venues now. They're cutting back. So anytime you can get out there and, you know, just – get up there on social media um, with an interview. It's great. It's great. It's just so great because people also want to hear your voice. They want to know about you <laughs> and feel like they know you. So interviewing people is a great way to do that. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's, for me, it's introduced me to works I might never have picked up before because I'll see somebody mention, you know, a book they've reviewed and I think, oh, I'm going to go check that out now. Or, you know, somebody says, oh, you should interview this person. They're great. They've got a new book. And so it opens up a whole other world of different genres because I used to be very one I would only read biographies or autobiographies or memoirs right, and then I right, started right. to expand because I'm like there's just too many good books out there to not read more than just right, right. that genre it's it's it, it yeah it's amazing when you stretch your perimeters I mean most of my book reviews are assigned and a lot of times I'll get books that I would never pick up I mean, I would never dare like science books or history books, and I've come to love them <laughs> because yes. I I read one and I had a review and I thought this is really great. I'm gonna look for more of these. I never I never judge books until I read them, um, so it's just great to expand your horizons. It is. Now, when you're writing, do you have a, like a practice or a ritual that you do before you sit down to write? Do you have to have a certain, you know, setup or your, what your writing, writing practice? Um, like? I, yeah, I mean, I used to for the, for, in the beginning of my career, I used to think that I had to wait for the muse. And a lot of mm-hmm. times the muse just didn't show up. <laughs> so I began to discover um, 
story structure, I took a course from John Truby, and um, I actually stalked him and became friends with him and his wife, Leslie Lear. I became friends with this woman, Lisa Cron, who also does story structure. And it's a way of thinking of your novel that sort of puts it in bite sizes so it's not so overwhelming. So every Mm -hmm. day I have, I mean, I have what I call writer synopsis, which is 40 pages of what I think is going to happen in the novel. And every day I just circle a couple of scenes so I'm not overwhelmed. And I say, okay, today... I'm going to work on this. And that's all I'm going to do. I'm not going to do anything else. So that way I don't feel like I'm never going to finish that it's too overwhelming. And I also, yeah. don't, I also feel that, oh, then I'll have more work to do tomorrow. And that's sort of what I do. I, I, I have to have music. Um, and it actually, I'm embarrassed to say, has to be really bad music <laughs> to listen to because I can't. If it's really good, then I'll listen to it. And I just need yeah. it something with a beat, something that's backdrop. Um, I have to have coffee. That's the only essential. And that's about <laughs> it. It's just, it's sort of a practice. It's like exercising. Yeah. The more you do it, the more you say, okay, this is what I'm going to do. But I will say the one thing that keeps me at my desk is that I'm just so grateful that I don't work at a job job anymore in an office. Mm-hmm. So whenever I sit down to write and I feel I start to feel crazy or sorry for myself, I tell myself, well, at least you're not working, you know, at an office writing about <laughs> towels again. <laughs> and that's, you know, then I start to feel blessed. <laughs> yes. And so for for you, writing is a full-time career, but for those that are just getting in, we often hear, when can mm-hmm. I quit my day job? So how, how do you get to that point where it's writing is a okay. full-time? It takes a while. It takes a really long time. And I, I also want to say that even though I'm a full-time writer, I have other jobs that I do. Everybody has mm-hmm. to. I teach. Most writers teach. I teach online, which is a great thing to do because then I can do it whenever I want. So I'm not tied down to a schedule. I'm a professional namer where I name products. Um, I, I do manuscript that. consults. Um, yeah. When I first started out, I'm trying to think what I did. I, I just put the words out to friends that – you know, if they had any interesting jobs. And I, I started out where I was, I was working at Columbia House Video full-time, and one of my friend's husband was doing these kids' books, a series of books, and book series are really good to get into. And they paid me something like 11000 to do one, and I had a month to do it. So I thought that was really good money. And I did that for a while. And once I did that, I was able to go to other book series. I went to Nancy Mm -hmm. Drew and said, look, I did this. I'd like to do this. And you build it up. In terms of online teaching, they – um, they usually won't take you until you've published something, but it doesn't have to be a book. Yes. It can be a short story or something. And I went to UCLA and they were just starting. They said, okay, we'll try you out. And I had no idea how to teach, but I did really well. <laughs> and so they kept giving me more and more work. Um, there are things like writers in the school that you can do. There are, don't be afraid to write. A lot of places will let you write catalog copies. The department stores always have catalogs, and you can write that mm. stuff at home, and it's not hard. Um, there's also a whole lot of places online that are looking for ghost writers, um, and that pays a lot. 
although usually the places online who are looking for ghostwriters, it's a really terrible job because the writers <laughs> usually, uh, you know, aren't, are all over the place. But it pays a lot of money. So yes. you just have to always keep your eyes open, and that's why it's good to be part of the community. It can take mm-hmm. a while, but you just have to remember that one thing leads to another, and you can't be afraid to take that leap and say, okay, I don't want to do my job anymore. And also sometimes yes. having a full-time job is not, if it's, a, if it's a job that's sort of mindless, then it doesn't matter. I mean, when I, when I worked for Columbia House, it was a really mindless job. So I could write on my lunch hour. Um, I didn't have to think about it too much. It was really easy work. Um, I used to write fashion copies for Macy's, and that was really mm-hmm. fun. And it didn't take too much of me so that I couldn't do it. Like if you're a doctor and you want to write, that's probably really hard. Or if you're a lawyer yeah. <laughs> and you have a job that's really high pressure, you can't. You probably want to look for other stuff. But if you have just your regular run-of-the-mill job job and you're just doing it for benefits and whatever mm-hmm. else they supply, that's not necessarily a bad thing. There's lots of writers who do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think, you know, in speaking about this, I'm always fascinated to know, you know, at what point did you feel like a writer? Did you ever have those moments where you're like, I'm not a real writer yet? And was there a turning point where you're like, okay, I'm a writer? (laughs) All the time. I never... I used to wear, in my 20s, I used to wear a T-shirt that I had the word writer on it, but I didn't Mm -hmm. feel like a writer until, seriously, until I got to Algonquin Books. Um, They made me feel like a writer. They made me feel respected. My agent made me feel like a writer. Um, And people began to know who I was, and that was important. Mm -hmm. But I always tell other writers, if you're writing every day, or even four days a week. I don't care whether you've published anything. You're a writer, and you get to call yourself a writer, and you have to claim that because um, I think when you claim that, it sort of sets up an energy in the universe where things start to happen. You write, Mm -hmm. you're a writer. If somebody looks at you and says, oh, well, what have you published and you haven't published anything? It doesn't matter. You're still a writer. And you can look that person in the eye and just repeat, I'm a writer. That's what I do. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's important to call yourself that no matter what stage you are. Yes. And do you find, I know writer's block comes up a lot for for people and some writers don't believe in it and some say it's a real thing. Have you experienced it? And how do you work through that, especially when you're on deadline for a publisher? Oh, um, I've never really had writer's block. And a lot of that I think is because of story structure, because there's always some structural thing you can do. You can figure out, mm-hmm. you can have a character, you can just ask a character, what are you mad about or what do you want? And then just free write <laughs> and something will come up. I did, however, um, a few years ago, I was just, I was just worn down. I had been touring, I was touring 40 cities and um, it was snowing, and it was right after the election. I guess it was two years ago. It was right after the election, and mm-hmm. nobody was coming out, and so the events were small. And 
I was just really depressed and I just didn't want to write anymore. And I told all my friends, I'm not doing it again. I have nothing to say. I don't want to write anymore. I'm just giving up. And I literally did not write for three months. I really didn't. And I was perfectly fine without doing it, though I wondered Mm -hmm. what I was going to do. And then all of a sudden an idea for a story came into my head and I was obsessed again. So sometimes writer's block is you need to do story structure. Sometimes writer's block is you just need time off, a little bit of time off. And I don't think any writer, again, I think it's your frame of mind. I don't think any writer should ever beat themselves up for having writer's block. It passes. It always passes. And mm-hmm. if you write, go do something else for a while. Or take this, or if you have a deadline, that's a different thing. If you have a deadline, then take an hour off and you know, read a book or for a while or go have chocolate or be good to yourself. But, <laughs> yeah. But don't self-hate yourself and think, oh, I must be a crappy writer because I have writer's block. Yeah. And I think, too, with a publisher, if you have the right publisher, they're pretty understanding in, you know, there are deadlines, oh, yeah. but it seems like if you have the right one, they're willing to help you work through anything that comes up. And you've had such oh, good yeah. things to say about Algonquin in specific. You know, we were talking a there, bit about there, publicity. Have, yeah, Algonquin has it written into my contract that there is a due date for my next novel, but there's a stipulation that if I need more time, I can have more time. Um, so there's never that feeling of, oh my God, what if I don't have this done? I mean, they, they're just there and they're just really, really helpful every step of the way. And it makes all the difference in the world. Um, so, you know, a writer just needs the right publisher. And so when you were talking about taking the break, the three month break, was that when Cruel Beautiful World came into fruition after that break? Yeah, it was really, it was really weird. It was, I just took a break and I felt I have nothing to write about. And then I just was thinking about, you know, things from my past. And this idea came up and I thought it was actually a book I had tried to write since I was 17. Um, it, It was a story of a friend of mine who sat in front of me in study hall who had a much, much older boyfriend who murdered her when she wanted to break up with him. And I thought, well, maybe I'll play around with that. And mm-hmm. I really didn't do anything for another two weeks. And then I sat down and all of a sudden the story just sort of exploded onto the page mm-hmm. and I knew how to write it. Um, so, And sometimes things like that happen. It was really surprising for me mm-hmm. because I really felt like, well, you know, I've written enough books. I don't have to do this anymore. And then all of a sudden <laughs> I really wanted to. <laughs> I and those are the best again, stories. Well, and just the Excuse way it was, it's written. And also I think what's fun is when, when you befriend fellow writers, I know I watched the entire process of this book being birthed because you would, yeah. you would post, right. <laughs> and we would, uh, and there would be polls like what was the popular perfume at the time or what do you remember? And everybody was giving their input. And I think that's one of the yes. things I love so much is how helpful everybody is. Everybody is amazing. I just, I actually dedicated that book. I put Facebook and Twitter in the acknowledgements because <laughs> yeah. first of all, it makes, I, I took, I take and I took 
social media on the ride with me every time. I always post how I'm doing, how I'm stuck, because I think a lot of writers don't realize that any writer, no matter where they are in their career, it's hard. It's incredibly hard. Mm -hmm. And I know Pulitzer Prize winning writers who still feel like everything they write is junk and it's really hard. And sometimes it's enough to just say, you know, I want to go back to dental school. And then you'll get a bunch of people saying, saying, yeah, I feel like that too. And it feels mm-hmm. better. But in terms of research, all I had to do was say, does anybody ever know the Mansons? And I got, I was so shocked. I got 12 people who actually knew, lived near the Mansons and had seen Charlie Manson or had spoken to some of the people in the family. And I was able to use that and it made it all so much more real. And also, Mm-hmm. Can be tethered to the novel because I felt well. All these people have helped me. I can't give up now, and that would push me ahead. Yeah, I think that does because some writers are like I don't say a word. I don't tell anybody I'm writing. I don't want to jinx it. But I, I kind of feel like everybody who has shared the process while they're going through the book right. and asked for input. Right. Everybody's been so excited to buy that book and read it and see what happens because right. exactly. you've been a part of the process. Right. You can't, you know, you really can't jinx it if you realize that every single writer or whatever part of their career they're at, they're frightened. And nobody really is going to steal your idea. They're not. Mm-hmm. They're just. It's just not done in publishing. It's done in the movies, but it's not. I've never really seen it done in publishing. Um, And it's just part of being open and being vulnerable, and you know, letting people into the process. I think I think it's important to let people know that it's hard. It's always Mm -hmm. hard. Nobody knows what they're doing, (laughs) and you just come to embrace that. Yeah. Did you, while you were writing Cruel Beautiful World, were there times where you grappled with worrying about the outcome like of what you were writing that people, if there would be a bad reaction to it or, you know, do you find that that influences your writing or did you just shut everything out and say, I've got to get this out my way first? You know, I, I used to worry about that stuff, but I've written enough books now that I've learned that you can't worry about it. You can't think mm-hmm. about it because you'll make yourself crazy. Um, yeah. I, the, thing, the kinds of things I worry about more is I was worried that um, I didn't want to hurt my friend who was murdered. I didn't want to hurt her surviving family. Yes. So I worried about changing enough things so they wouldn't know. I, I mm-hmm. worried about, um, I was writing about my mom and I worried about how she would take it. Um, Mm -hmm. but you know, she, by the time the novel was done, my mother had dementia, so she wasn't going to read it anyway, which was sort of a heartbreak for me. And Mm -hmm. those kinds of things are just, I mean, I worry about those things, but I don't, you can't worry about what reviewers are going to think because they're going to think all kinds of things and there's nothing you can Mm -hmm. do about it. So you just have to worry about the book. And when it comes to, you know, taking real life events and fictionalizing the story, you know, there is a careful crafting that goes on to make sure that, you know, it's fictionalized enough that people aren't, you know, easily picking up on who it is or who it could have possibly been inspired by. 
I was actually sued for my very first novel, which was really a bizarre oh. story. It had, I mean, the lawsuit was dropped, but it was, my characters were called Ben B and Rosie Nelson. I thought those were like just simple American names. And it was about yeah. a family dealing with their daughter who had mental illness. And the book came out, I was getting all this press and yeah. all this stuff. And then I got a letter from a lawyer saying that his client, Ben B and Rosie, I don't remember what their real last name was, but it was something like Neiman or Nelson son. It was something very <laughs> close. Were suing for invasion of property because they felt that I was taking their story um, and using oh it. And goodness. also the bizarre thing was they lived in the same town that I was wow. living in at the time. So it was really oh scary. Gosh. So I talked to the lawyers and I said, do you think I'd be stupid enough to use their real names? You know, I made yeah. this up and I told them like who it was about and I wanted to counter sue because they wanted to suppress the book. And the Lord finally uh, said, look, if you take this to court, the book isn't going to come out. And you have, the book isn't going to continue to sell. You have all this great momentum going. He yeah. said, how about this? I'm going to suggest to them that you change three of the names just in the paperback and not in the hardback. And mm-hmm. I didn't want to do it, but my agent kept saying, you really should do it. So I ended up doing yeah. it. Um, and so to this day, I've learned that. People can sue for anything. So, again, you can't yes. make yourself too crazy about it. But on the other hand, you never want to use real names. You don't want to use real descriptions, mm-hmm. physical descriptions of people. And, you know, you want to be careful about stuff like that but, and contact yeah. the lawyer if you're worried. But that stuff does happen. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's a big fear, especially for people that are writing memoir, um, like myself, you right. have to be so careful, because there were people, yes. it was funny, when I mentioned writing a book, I couldn't believe the people who came out of the woodwork to let me know that they did not want to be in my book. <laughs> <gasps> really? It, oh yes, well, you it was to tell them. Yeah. You have to tell them, well, you know what? It's your interpretation of yes. events that happened that you lived. And that's yeah. how you get away. From, that's how you get away, how you're able <laughs> to do that. Because it's your interpretation, not theirs. Exactly. I mean, I think, I think if you wrote about somebody and you said, oh, this person was a real drunk and they're a charlatan and they're a terrible doctor, that would impact mm-hmm. their business. So then if they can yes. see it impacts their business. It's, but if you just write about, well, I went to this doctor and uh, she was really terrible and blah, 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 then they can't sue because nobody's going to know except you yes. and your closest friends who that doctor was. Exactly. Well, it's a really great information, and I'm just I'm so grateful for this conversation because we've covered so Me much. Too. <laughs> Me too. I love talking to you. I love talking to you in the um, um, in the advance in the advance interview, and I love this. And so this is a good lesson for writers because now you and I are friends. <laughs> exactly. You want to reach out? Yeah. You know, I feel like I know you. I love you. I want to have coffee with you, and that's Aww. what writers have to do to build community. Exactly. I think it's so important to, for all of us to reach out to each other and help each other. And, and I think it, you know, people are always talking about when the book comes, comes out, like you have to get the pre-orders going is very important part of the publishing process. You know, we don't always, we don't always talk about it, but a lot of times, a lot of uh, new writers aren't aware that it's really crucial that first six months before the book's even published. Yes. 
to get pre-ordered. Yeah, it is. Yep, you want to do that. And also, if you approach any big magazine like Oprah's, the old the old magazine, that's all done mm-hmm. six to eight months beforehand. Yes. Everything is done. Newspapers are three months beforehand. They decide what they're going to review. Otherwise, mm-hmm. it's too late. It's just too yes. late. It's too late. Um, and you do want those pre-orders. So you want to start six months before the book is out. You want to post your cover on social mm-hmm. media. Say, oh, here's my cover. Do you like it? Um, talk about what you're doing for your book. Ask people, oh, I'd love to read in you know, Santa Monica or wherever somebody is. Does yes. anybody know a good bookstore? And people will come out of the woodwork to help you. They really will. Definitely. Definitely. I've been, I've just been in awe watching the process over the past couple of years doing this, how amazing it is that people will post like their advanced reader copies that they get um, that are abbreviated yep. to an ARC. So when you get your ARCs and you post them, you know, I usually go and order those books because I trust the opinions yeah. of my fellow writer friends to say, you guys need to pick this up. Yep. Like this is special. And, and, yep. and that's been one of the biggest ways I've seen books sell. Now for Cruel Beautiful World, did you find that there was, there was one particular part of publicity that seemed to work really well for the book sales or was it a combination of a few different you know it was a, well a lot of it had to do with Algonquin you know stuff that they were doing but a lot of this came by surprise I mm-hmm. was just talking about my book on um, Twitter and I happened to say come back to the world of the 70s with you know love's baby soft perfume bell bottoms and I got mm-hmm. a um, tweet from love's baby soft the company and they said we'd like to do a promotion with you and I put them in touch with Algonquin and they both did this big huge promotion with Love Baby Soft and it was great it was just really really great and that's the kind of thing that Algonquin does I mean they took yeah they took quotes out of the book and like really cryptic quotes and plastered it all over social media and that got a lot of stuff they just um you know, they just yeah, those were really things. eye-catching. Yeah, yeah they did really a really fantastic thing. job. Like, I wish we could they kind of do. bottle it and, like, show people this is how you promote a book. Because it was just, it was really well done and the execution was flawless. They're incredible. Because, they are absolutely yeah. incredible. Their marketing department, their publicity department, their editorial department it's just it's it's mm-hmm. like living in paradise it really is and I've had five other publishers so I know that this isn't always yes. the way <laughs> exactly well I'm just I'm so grateful for everything you have shared here with us today Carolyn and you know your work is amazing your writing is just thank you so so good and I realize I'm not even giving it the a sliver of justice in not having the right words, but <laughs> I just, I loved Cruel Beautiful World so much. I mean, I, I was born in 79, but even the early part of the eighties, there's, there's a lot of like n- nostalgia there and a lot of things that I recognize. Right, in my siblings. Right. And I think that's what pulled me in right away was the descriptiveness of everything happening Thank at the you. time. And Thank I you. Just, yeah, it's just so good. Well, I also want to say that um, this is actually another promotional thing I did that writers can use. I'm going to do right now. Um, yes. For anybody who 
who buys my book in, you can buy it in paperback um, or hardback or audiobook. Um, for anybody who buys it, I will make you a little tiny watercolor and send it to you. And it will be like a book plate and you can put it in That's your book. Beautiful. So um, I'm really easy to find online. So just contact me yes. and I'll tell you the details and I'll be happy to do that. And that's just one of the marketing things that writers can do for themselves. That's amazing. And I love, I love that idea and I'm totally getting one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You can thank you, Car. <laughs> oh, thank you. So do you. I've just, I've been so grateful for your blog and everything you share on social media always helps me. So if other writers are out there, please make sure that you follow Carolyn on social media, on Facebook, on Twitter, it's carolynlivett.com. That's Carolyn L E A V I T T.com. And make sure you order a copy of her latest book, cruel, beautiful world. And please remember, reviews are crucial for writers, and we appreciate all of our yes. listeners who take the time to leave a review on Amazon and yes, Goodreads.com. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, so absolutely. definitely. I just want to say what I, I had a friend who wrote um, Still Alice, and she self-published it because she couldn't get a publisher. She had mm-hmm. so many reviews on Amazon that her pub- a publisher noticed, and that's how she got a traditional wow. book deal. So reviews matter, so matter, matter. Reviews matter. They really do. Well, thank you again so much, Carolyn. I'm just really grateful for this conversation, and I'm excited for your next book. (laughs) Thank you. We'll definitely have to have you back and talk about it. And you and I will definitely have to have coffee sometime if we're in the same place. Yes. Yes. The next time I'm in the country, we will definitely get together. (laughs) Thank you so much, Crystal. Thank you so much for having me on the show. It was an honor. And thank all you writers who are listening. That's an honor, too. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us today on Literary Speaking. If you'd like to learn more about Carolyn and her work, visit carolynlivitt.com. That's carolyn, L-E-A-V-I-T-T.com. Make sure you order a copy of her latest book, Cruel Beautiful World, and let her know, and she'll create a beautiful watercolor book plate for you. You can contact her via her website or on social media, Facebook and Twitter at Carolyn leave it reviews are crucial for our writers and we appreciate all of our listeners who take the time to leave a review on amazon and goodreads.com so if you've enjoyed our show please take a moment to leave a review on itunes we'd love to hear from you join us next week as we speak to author tabitha blankenbiller her foodoir eats of eden is one of the most fun foodie reads we've had this year see you next week Thank you for listening to Literary Speaking with your host, Crystal Lee Quibell. To start discovering how you can begin telling your story, go to crystalleequibell.com. That's crystalleequibell, Q-U-I-B-E-L-L.com. And sign up for Crystal Lee's newsletter. Join us again next week for more advice from your favorite authors and publishing professionals.